Hello there, my name is Noah, and I'm here alongside my co-hosts, M. Hey! And Rob. Hey there! We are the hosts of Fax Machine, a podcast by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. We are so, so excited to welcome our special guest, Dr. Latasha Wright, to this episode. Welcome! Hey! Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome. Uh, so, Latasha, you are the chief scientific officer at Biobus, uh, and astute listeners will recall that our very own Rob Frawley uh, is a scientist at Biobus, making hey. you Rob's Biobus Bioboss, um, <laughs> which is, is how I'm going to be referring to you, if that's cool. <laughs> I'm kind of like boss babe, but if you got to go there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Why not both? Why not bio, bio boss babies? Ooh, bio boss babies. I like it. Okay. Nice. Yes. I'm going to get cards made up with that. Absolutely. I was, I was going to say, this is definitely following us back to the office. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we're we're extremely excited for you to be on uh, because you're a very cool scientist who's got a lot of cool stuff to tell us, as we know. Uh, but I've also uh, been wanting to learn more about Biobus, and you know, M, you understand, like you know, Rob has been trying to talk to us about Biobus for ages, but you know, we were kind of holding out for someone more prominent, maybe. <laughs> Someone uh, a little higher up in the organization who could give us the real scoop, you know. So uh, now that you're here, we finally uh, we're finally ready to ask, what is Biobus? <laughs> well, <laughs> Biobus would not run without Rob. We need him. He's like, you know, he's a linchpin, you know. He's got to talk to the computer. <laughs> <laughs> now, so we've been around since 2008. Um, and we started out with a 1974 transit bus that was bought off of Craigslist for $10,000. Heck yeah. And then we got a bunch of microscopes and we put them inside and we took it to schools and communities and kids loved it. Um, and it like made such a huge impact that we were like, okay, we got to keep going with this. Um, and so... Uh, we decided to abandon ship on the <laughs> academic front and uh, just go ahead and be like driving education. Ah, fine. Very nice. Yes. To all the schools and communities around New York City. So um, we've had over 300,000 kids come on our bio buses uh, in the last uh, 12 years. Um, so the kids can come aboard and do science with us, but we also have a bio base um, in Columbia Zuckerman Institute where people can come and do after school programs. And we also have internships for high school and college students. And once we get back in person, you can definitely come to our public events um, and that are held monthly. And you could definitely see Rob there because Rob's there all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, like a slight stalker of Fax Machine, then come on down. <laughs> um, so it's, it's really great. Um, I love it. 
I think that the kids um, are make me understand why I wanted to go into science because they see the 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 curiosity that you see and also the excitement that that just seeing something like pollen under the microscope you're like oh wait this is amazing so it makes you really yeah. understand like how wonderful the world around you is absolutely i think microscopy is one of those things that like i like i i have to do for my job as a scientist but i I'd spend more time on the microscope than is really necessary because I just get utterly lost and being like, whoa, neurons look like what? Oh, no, exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's just so, it's so fun to be able to like see these incredibly small, very, very interesting things. And it's really awesome that you've given kids a chance to experience that as well. Yeah. Um, so if, if you like what you're hearing about Biobus, an extraordinary organization we have just learned about today for the first time. Um, <laughs> uh, if you wanted to donate to Biobus, uh, you could do so at donate.biobus.org. And we will give you that link again at the end. But just in case, as you're listening to this, you're like inspired uh, to help some kids learn about some science on a bus, um, as opposed to any other place. It's a, it's a great place to learn about science. Um, you can you can go on your phone that you're listening to this on, <laughs> maybe, uh, and donate at donate.biobus.org. All right, so in every episode of Facts Machine, each of us shares one fascinating fact along with the incredible story behind it, and finally we wrap things up with a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. And this week, our theme is dyes. Those are substances used to impart color to materials such as textiles and which have had remarkable impacts on the course of history, science, and art, and we are dying to tell you all about it. (laughs) 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 <laughs> okay look don't let jokes like that one color your expectations uh of what we're sure won't be a stain on our record um but although we recognize that describing colors on a podcast can be a challenge you'll have to take our word that these aren't just pigments of our imagination damn it <laughs> yes there's no doubt that the facts we share in this episode will be intense Ooh. <laughs> noah Yes. Who do you think you are? <laughs> uh, I mean, what did you expect, Tra? <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, with that, M, take it away. All right. <laughs> Happily. All right. This week, I learned that the first synthetic pigment ever made has given us, among other things, Hokusai's famous The Great Wave Off Kanagawa woodblock print, cyanide, and a life-saving medication that gives your poo the blues. Mm. Yeah, quite a, uh, a motley crew, or I guess motley blue, <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> of functions. So yeah, as you probably guessed, I'm talking about a blue pigment, uh, or dye, depending on how you apply it. Um, and that pigment is called Prussian blue. Um, so I will say that before I launch in, quite a bit of what I'll discuss in this fact, I learned from uh, Cassia St. Clair's book, The Secret Lives of Color, and I highly recommend it. It is just, if you ever want to delve into the kind of like cultural and scientific and historical significance of all sorts of different colors and pigments, um, it is just a really like delightful compilation. And it's also just like graphically presented as a rainbow, like on the, the border of each <laughs> Oh, page. cool. So it's just very pretty to like flip through as well. Anyways, 
Uh, a bit about humanity's relationship with the color blue before I launch in. Um, so across centuries and civilizations, blue is ubiquitous and imbued, <clears throat> imbued uh, with <laughs> myriad meanings <laughs> and associations. It's too good. Not seeing the end of that. <laughs> so, for example, like in the religions of the ancient Egyptians and Hinduism and Christianity, um, you know, blue has been associated with the heavens and divine figures. It's featured in regalia and coats of arms of royalty, um, kind of giving it a significance of like sovereignty and nobility. Um, and honestly, even beyond that, blue's connotations are so numerous that they can even be like contradictory. Um, it's at once the shade of kind of like melancholy and sadness, you know, you feel blue. Um, it's also kind of like associated with like order or respectability. Um, we think of sort of like military outfits, um, kind of being frequently blue or shades of that. Um, you have blue bloods of the upper crust, but then also like blue collar, mm -hmm. uh, manual laborers forming unions. So it's just, as I mentioned, ubiquitous everywhere. Uh, we think about blue a lot all over the world. Um, and even nowadays, if you just Google search, like, associations or connotations of the color blue, um, pretty much everything that comes up has to do with corporate branding, because, of course, it does. Um, but some of the words that you'll see are, like, peace and calmness and freshness and purity and health and wisdom and trustworthiness. And it's just, yeah, it just can mean everything and anything. Um, and is also... I think in surveys, the most common favorite color of just people across surveys. Oh, That's yeah. me. Fair enough. Yeah. Same. <laughs> there we go. Oh, my God. Look at that. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, is also a very common kind of like safe choice um, among corporations, which is also why, at least I feel personally, when I'm on my phone, I like regularly try to like tweet from the Facebook app or hop onto a Zoom meeting in Zillow or like accidentally <laughs> Venmo people when I'm just trying to check the weather. That last one has really wreaked havoc on my bank account. But yeah. point being, just like... Trying to Venmo your weatherman to... Yeah. <laughs> Come on, I'm please. really hoping for some rain tomorrow. No, <laughs> like, like, please give me more, please. <laughs> um... So yeah, so we, as, as far as I can tell, like humanity has always craved blue. <laughs> um, and given this sort of desire for blue pigments, um, you know, in art, crafted objects, textiles, um, for much of history, blue pigment was actually often really rare and expensive and not easy to obtain. Um, so if you were an artist at the beginning of the 18th century in Europe, um, which is just before Prussian blue, the pigment of my fact, kind of came onto the scene, uh, the blue pigments available to you were all derived from nature. Um, in most cases sourced from like foreign, faraway lands, imported quite a long way, and then only actually isolated after labor intensive and in some cases like chemically toxic processes. So for example, one of your options was indigo. Um, that's, you know, a dye that we've used across cultures dating back to antiquity. Um, the best quality versions of it are derived from leaves of the Indigofera genus of plants that's found in the tropical and like subtropical climates all over the world. Um, though there is kind of like a, there was like an, a not as color fast version, um, from a related plant called woad in Europe that became a little more popular, um, around this time as well. Um, but even still, like the process to derive indigo, um, like as a powder for a pigment, involves fermenting the leaves of this plant in like a really basic solution, which produces like what were described as putrid, like corpse-like fumes. 
delightful. <laughs> um, and then, like, basically, like, beating and hitting that liquid to aerate it until, like, you can separate out powder, like, really hard and over a long time. So not super easy to just get a little bit of blue powder um, from these plants. Another option was Tyrian purple, um, also known as Phoenician purple. Um, so that's the one that we've had since the ancient Phoenicians uh, that would show up a lot as sort of like royal blues and purples used um, in kind of like the garments of the royalty. Um, and that one uh, is derived from secretions of the Myricidae family of predatory sea snails. Uh, that can be accomplished either by milking them, as it's called, <laughs> to uh, yeah collect their ooze, or by like crushing them. And then in that case, you know, it's not renewable because the poor snails um, have been destroyed. Um, but in terms of like how many snails you actually need to <laughs> derive like uh, significant amounts of Tyrian purple. Um, the measurements I was seeing were in the realm of like a few thousands just to dye even like a trim of a garment. So can imagine that takes right. quite a bit of labor too <laughs> and hence makes sense that was a very exclusive dye for a very long time. Um, but the gold or I guess gold blue standard, blue gold standard, <laughs> whatever, uh, was ultramarine. Now, that was a pigment uh, that's derived from powder ground from the very deeply blue-hued uh, type of rock called lapis lazuli. Um, and that's, I mean, it's one of my personal favorites, not that I'm biased, but <laughs> lapis lazuli is super cool. Um, it's been found in artifacts dating back to like the 7th millennium BC um, in the Indus Valley. And although now it's it can be found in uh, some areas all over the world, um, for a long time, uh, it was sourced from the Sari Sang mines of Afghanistan, um, and then used, you know, across ancient civilizations in China and Egypt and the Caucasus, and then eventually uh, spread further to Europe along the Silk Road. Um, so similarly, as you can imagine, extracting ultramarine, also not super simple because you are literally grinding a rock into a powder. <laughs> um, yeah, and what's more, um, because uh, the sort of blue tone actually comes from a mineral called lazurite that's in lapis lazuli, um, and it's not the only mineral that's in the rock, uh, there's also a lot of like boiling and purification steps that had to happen as well just to isolate that particular blue pigment. So again, kind of a pain in the butt to make and also had to go a really long way. Um, but all of that travel and toil proved worth it because basically once traders began um, importing ultramarine Basically, once traders began importing ultramarine to Europe, um, like on ships to Venice in the Middle Ages, it quickly became like the pigment to have among Renaissance painters. Oh, you must try the <laughs> lapis lazuli. Oh, no, for real. I mean, like... It's the pigment of color at 1488. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um... And there was good reason for that. Like, it was a really, like, uniquely vibrant and, like, brilliant blue. Um, and more of, like, a true blue, whereas, like, some of the other pigments around that I mentioned were kind of, like, greenishy tinged. Um, but also, this was around the same time that, like, depictions of the Virgin Mary draped in, like, bright blue robes were very in style. So naturally, the painters were like, well, my Virgin Mary's robes are going to be the prettiest blue, so I have to get this ultramarine. Um the only problem with that is that, so again, you have this like very rare, very difficult to obtain, highly coveted pigment. It was 
insanely expensive to the point that most painters wouldn't even like attempt to use it unless it was for like a commissioned piece from one of their patrons that they actually could like make sure they could front the cost of it and even um plenty of patrons would actually purchase their own stocks of ultramarine and like ration it out to painters um for particular projects because it was just like so so expensive and hard to come by um Mm. so given this As I said, for much of human history, blue pigments were really only obtainable um, from nature over long distances after beating, like, smelly leaf juice, milking thousands of snails, or grinding rocks into a powder. (laughs) Not super ideal. But that was until a paint manufacturer and a sloppy pharmacist made a chemical whoopsie that would change the world forever. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, sloppy pharmacist yeah that's like a good bar name i think Ooh. Yeah. the sloppy pharmacist like yeah that. yeah so prussian blue or its story uh as i mentioned began back in the early 18th century uh estimated about 1706 um when as far as i can tell every chemist was an alchemist just like in this time in history um and paint maker slash alchemist johann jacob diesbach uh one day realized that he was out of potash which was something that he needed uh, to mix with iron sulfate and some cochineal beetles to make a red pigment called cochineal red lake. So he went and got some potash uh, from pharmacist slash alchemist. Again, everybody was. uh, Johann Conrad Dippel, um, whose reputation for carelessness and subpar quality wares was known to Diesbach. But, you know, the guy was just down the street and sometimes you just you can't beat convenience. You know, I don't blame him. Um, but <laughs> so, yeah, so Diesbach, uh, you know, got his potash, went to go make his paint following his usual recipe, um, but found that it turned out kind of a pale, like dull pink instead of the usual deep red. So he was like, well, maybe it's just diluted or something. So concentrated it, concentrated it. Then it turned purple, kept concentrating. Then it turned deep blue. And then he was like, Dipple. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> Turns out that, yes, Dipple screwed him over by selling him some contaminated potash, but uh, that cloud had a Prussian blue lining because that's what he'd actually made. Uh, Prussian blue, also known as ferric ferrocyanide, also known as the first synthetic pigment wow. ever created. So nicely done. Um, so the yeah. recipe for it was like sort of published um, in a scientific journal in 1724, like about 20 years later. And then by 1750, it was being manufactured all over Europe and sold at one tenth the price of ultramarine. So like it changed the game in terms of blue pigments that were available. Um, and because of that, it was pretty much like an instant and lasting hit. Um, you know, it's a really nice, cool blue. It could produce a variety of tints and mix really well with other pigments. So lots of artists were attracted to it, um, like Japanese woodblock artists, as I mentioned at the top of the fact, um, as well as Van Gogh, Monet. Um, and it was even the blue in Picasso's blue period. So it's just been pervasive ever since. Um, its cheapness and the kind of easy scalability also made it a popular choice for manufacturing and textiles, um, and that it gained its actual name because it dyed the coats of the Prussian army for a long time. Um, and also, it was like a fun side fact. Um, so the Crayola crayon color Midnight Blue was actually originally Prussian blue. So if you have some crayons by you and want to draw that out, then you'll see it. Um, but they changed the name to Midnight Blue in 1958 because they were like, there's no Prussia anymore. No one's going to know what this means. Another cool thing, uh, again, with Prussian blue sort of being more accessible, um, 
we can, you know, people can study it more, uh, better understand its chemistry. And over time, it also proved to have a range of uses that were beyond just being a pretty blue pigment. Um, so, for example, uh, French chemist Pierre Macaire found that heating it yields the acid hydro- hydrogen cyanide, um, a.k.a. cyanide. So that was actually how we, like, found cyanide, through Prussian blue. And that's actually why cyanide is named that as well, because it comes from a blue pigment. Hmm. Yeah, Prussian blue is also really good at binding positively charged metal cations um, and is itself like harmless to ingest. That being said, don't go home and eat a bunch of it. Just just don't do it unless, well, you need to, and you'll know why momentarily. Um, but because of those facts, it's given to patients who've ingested toxic heavy metals uh, like thallium or radioactive cesium um, to basically soak up those metals so that they can kind of pass more quickly through their GI system and be expelled without poisoning them further. Um, and then when that happens, the, uh, the poo is a very bright, alarming shade of blue. <laughs> so hence... Prussian blue poo. <laughs> it's pretty alarming if it's any unusual shade. Yes, I, true. I think calls back the uh, the Frankenberry. Well, didn't you, uh, yes, exactly. Rob, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Frankenberry's yeah. stool. Uh, Rob, yes. can you explain what we're talking so, about to little Tasha? Tasha, I don't know if you've ever enjoyed Frankenberry, the the kids Halloween themed cereal. Um, I've seen it, but I haven't enjoyed it. <laughs> you've never seen it like this. So, um, <laughs> unlike Booberry and Count Chocula and all the other like Halloween themed cereals, this one contained like some kind of element, and I, I can't remember which metal it was, but it was like a hot pink that they used to make Frankenstein's head look pink and berry like, and it was preserved and undigested in children's stool, and so kids would be rushed to pediatricians with like bright pink stool. And doctors are like, what's going on? And there's a paper that came out, like a, a medical paper about Frankenberry stool. If kids eat this breakfast cereal, it just turns their poop oh, pink. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Good times. I feel like at, by the end of this, a fax machine will have run the full gamut of like situations where poo has become discolored in like <laughs> an unusual way. So I have a, a friend or colleague from Wall Cornell who published a published a children's book about the different <laughs> colors urine can be. Oh, yeah, and I I will oh. find the name and I will. And then on the on the bottom there was like a, a reader <laughs> review. It says urine for a treat. <laughs> <laughs> This week, I learned about a dye that I used all through grad school and at Biobus called Safranin. Mm. And that it is not the same as saffron. Oh. So <laughs> th- things some people might have thought for a second there, maybe for several years even. But um, so, um, but not while you were working at Biobus, right? Oh, de- no. <laughs> no. 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 That definitely would have come up in the interview. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, so one of the nice things about working at Biobus is putting cool slides under the microscope and showing these really awesome samples. And I have been just toting around this uh, literal box of mouse knees for the last five years. And I think everyone at Biobus is like, there goes their big kit. Of course. Who doesn't yeah. have mouse knees in and their back like, pocket? Here goes Rob with, his, Rob with his mouse knees again. Yeah. And just... <laughs> And it's in it's in tons of videos now because in the last year we've recorded everything so that they're everywhere, and thanks to <laughs> thanks to my graduate mentors and the doctors at uh, Wild Cor- or Wild Cornell and Hospital for Special Surgery for 
preparing and releasing those samples with me. Um, but there are two states there. <laughs> they were like, we don't want these mouse things. <laughs> Will you throw these Please. away? And Rob goes, take them off our yeah. hands. Yeah, throw I'll them out. throw yeah. them away. Oh my God. <laughs> but no, um, so they're, they're really nice samples because there's really good architecture of the bone and the soft tissue. And the staining is so bright. It's this really incredibly bright staining. Um, that looks at the the bone tissue and the soft tissue, and it comes out in two shades, red and blue. And uh, the blue kind of stains a lot of the the bonier tissue, uh, but the red does this really great job of staining the cartilage and the the growth plate, which is one of the most kind of important parts of long bones. And so I use it all the time as a teaching tool. And people always ask, like, wait, what is this dye? And I'm just like, oh, it's saffronin. Wow, blah, 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 saffronin. And where'd you get these mouse knees, they ask? <laughs> That's probably the first question. You're right. But <laughs> but so I'd been using these in the context of mouse knees for a long time. Then I started teaching microbiology, where we do gram stains on bacteria, which turn bacteria either purple or pink based on... Uh, what their their outer shell, their kind of cell wall is made out of. And we did endospore stains to see if bacteria would make spores that could be resistant to UV light or temperature. And we also used some analytical chemistry to check on on reactions. And all of these things use safranin. Safranin is huh. one of these like really kind of all-purpose dyes. And in in the scientific community, it's probably in the top 10, maybe top 15, most popular dyes used for like all different purposes and all different types of labs. And so I was really interested to see what does it even do? Like, how does it work? Why, why do I use it for cartilage, but they use it for like gram negative bacteria, but like they use it for mast cells, which are like white blood cells that are tissue specific. And how can it do all these things? Um, so I really went down the, uh, the safranin hole. And the first thing I want to point out is that it's in my thesis defense in the in the printed version, and uh, I spelled it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the good news is that at least like online in several places, it says like safranin parentheses often misspelled safranin without an e at the end. So it's s a f r a n i n e, and the i n e is actually important. Oh chemically because so it's probably saffronine actually or saffronine uh, saffronine um mm. but it's oh. got an it's got an amine group in it and that's actually one of the very important okay. chemical things about this is that it has this nitrinated uh ring um but so it's a it's a positively charged basic dye it adheres to cell membranes so that's why it works in bacteria it, it mm. uh, sticks to the cell membranes after uh, for gram negative bacteria because they have thinner cell walls um, it also binds to nuclei, so it's used in viability staining. So things that are alive, they kind of push it away. Things that are dead, it seeps in and it stains the nucleus red. So you can see a big red mark where your cells are dead. Um, so it does a lot of things using the kind of same chemical properties, and it's just allowed into different tissues at different times, which I think is pretty cool. So it's pretty universal, and it's made its way into a lot of different fields of biology, which to me means it has to be kind of old. Um, and I went back to kind of the, the, the first description of safranin in scientific literature. And so safranin is either safranin O or phenosafranin is kind of the name of these dyes that, that are used in lab. And they're a big family of, uh, of chemical moieties or chemicals that can be used. Uh, the first one 
uh, or kind of like the maybe the original one was called mauvine because it made a nice mauve mm. color. Mm. Um, and this is, I think, kind of where the interesting story starts. So mauvine was discovered by this guy named William Henry Perkin. And mm. he was not trying to make mauvine. He was not trying to make a dye. Perkin was actually trying to make a malaria drug, quinine. And Emily, I think, I guess you have yeah. <laughs> stumbled upon this story before. Um, Go on. Yeah, it's a great one. <laughs> but so Y'all have knocked out two of my questions. Booyah! Oh, no. I mean, yes. <laughs> For us, anyway. <laughs> but so, in in the process of, of making uh, quinine, uh, which has a quinolone group, which is similar to the, the structure of this chemical. And I'm sorry, for those of you who don't picture chemicals in your head, like me, these words are meaningless, but I'm just I'm repeating now. them. <laughs> um, but so he was heating up this, this, uh, this starting point chemical with potassium stuff and sulfuric acid. And he essentially got this mauve colored powder by mistake. He made like some small error. And I was thinking to myself, that must have been a crazy experiment when you expect to get a malaria drug and you get this bright purple powder. And so I checked. And that happened in 1864. And he wrote a paper about it. And then in a subsequent paper, he described getting from there to the creation of saffronin. And uh, so I want to read you a quick excerpt from his 1879 Journal of the Chemical Society paper, Mm. which begins... In 1864, I gave an account of some experiments I had made on the crystallized coloring matter which had been obtained from the commercial mauve dye of aniline purple. I then stated it contained an organic base, having a formula that I will not repeat. (laughs) Since then, I have at various times made experiments on this product, and I now beg to lay before the society the principal results that I have obtained. And then (laughs) he presents ten pages of basically... First, I mixed it with this, and this happened, and then I mixed it with this, and this happened. Mm-hmm. And, like, he has all this stoichiometry, but, like, kind of no measurements. Just, like, it turned this color, and it looked like this, and it was really cool. <laughs> and Man, after... it was so easy to publish back in the day. I've... Right? Honestly, <laughs> apparently you just had to beg. Like, who knew? <laughs> <laughs> and then after ten pages of that, he gets to Saffronin, the one that I cared about. And he's like, I've already drawn attention to the existence of this dye. Um, differing from Malvin in its solubility. But he says, I have made many experiments on this subject and give an example of the processes for its isolation. And then 10 more pages of, first I mixed it with this and this happened. And just like, it's literally like, I work with high school scientists now and like high school students doing science projects. And this is this is the process. What if you heat it up? What if you added acid? What if you added more acid? <laughs> just like... <Yeah. laughs> And then my favorite Should is Should we the... taste it before or after we add the acid? <laughs> <laughs> but my, my... Can we stop the bus? Well, the acid is going to spill. Just put it on. My favorite is his conclusion, which is it like comes right at the end of a, a result, not like, you know, the end of a discussion, but just like, then I did this and this happened. I bring these forward <laughs> merely as suggestions. Experiments alone can settle the true constitution of these bodies. I am at present making some more experiments on the acetylate replacement derivatives of mauvine and saffronin, which I hope will throw a little light <laughs> onto the matter. Done. Mic drop. Oh what my a, gosh. Like, yeah. I have to say, like, not. <laughs> so, as part of my facts, which I was like, 
I think we've done enough, so I didn't go into it. But I also read Sir John Herschel's paper, wherein he published, uh, like, the cyanotype process. It is ostensibly the same. (laughs) 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 And really, and also enjoyed, like, oh, this is what this looked like. But also, I don't know if this was the same for the Perkins paper, too. Um, It was very sort of narrative. Like, he really inserted Mm -hmm. kind of himself into the paper a lot and sort of, like, described his reactions to the chemical reactions, which I thought was nice, where it's like, oh, like... This, uh, what was it? He, I think it was kind of like, oh, like this sort of like peculiar, like capricious reaction produced with, <laughs> like it blew with the most remarkable shade. And it's like, I kind of wish we still <laughs> sort of use that language. It's just, it yeah, makes like, it a little more compelling. When, when um, chemists yeah. were like sommeliers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it was also like similarly very long-winded. Yeah. Oh. The... <laughs> 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 I like what you said about about chemists being kind of like sommeliers. It'd be like this acid has a when you, when you taste it, you get a distinct waft of regret. <laughs> <laughs> this is a terroir of excruciating pain. <laughs> this is an impetuous blue that makes me feel burnt inside. <laughs> <laughs> So when I think of tie-dye, I think of the 60s and the summer of love. For some reason, that's when I thought it all started. Fun fact about me, I love tie-dye, but my love for tie-dye wasn't truly acknowledged until I went to the music festival, The Gathering of the Vibes in Bridgeport, Connecticut. This was an annual music festival with arts and camping. It was four days and it was filled with people who used to follow the Grateful Dead and their kids Ah, and their kids and their kids. (laughs) And you can imagine when I went on that fairground and there was an explosion of tie-dye. The first day I was like, I found my people. (laughs) And I was so happy. And I immediately went to buy a whole tie-dye outfit. <laughs> so needless to say, I have a significant amount of tie-dye now, and I may be representing right now <laughs> while we're talking. And uh, Rob is too. I see sucking up to the bio box. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> is that a bio box shirt? It's, it's you're actually another science outreach company. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. Yes, it's right. That's okay. Yeah. It's okay because I have one too. It's fine. It's okay. <laughs> it's all it's, it's all together, you know? So I was really excited to dig down deep in the history of tie-dye. But guess what? I found out tie-dye started in Asia. Oh. <laughs> so there's also some surviving pre-Columbian examples in Peru around 500 AD to 800 AD. But this was a little bit before Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead. (laughs) So as we heard earlier, you know, in olden times, people used to use dye for berries and leaves and roots and flowers to color their clothing. These natural items were boiled and the fabrics were soaked in hot dyed water to take up the new color. So let's talk about tie-dye. So in Southwest China, the Bai people have been tie-dyeing their clothes with a plant called woad, also called Astro Jerusalem, <laughs> for over 1,500 Ooh, years. Wow. 
<laughs> what <Whoa. Yes. laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah whoa uh, <laughs> oh it's similar to indigo but it's a low concentration of blue pigment so they pick these leaves from these plants and they let them ferment for two to three months and then they extract the dye so i always wonder like who's the first one why did they even think to put this on clothing, right? Um, it was because they used this herb to make teas. And then the farmers also got it on their, somebody got it on their clothes and they were like, oh, it's staining my clothes. <laughs> and he was like, oh, I can wear my whole clothes, Blue bro. He's like, let's do this. And <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so the Bai people love white and they love blue. This was first a specific color blue. So um, they make these intricate plant patterns that reflect the nature, like fish and flowers and butterflies. And what they do is they sew these patterns into um, their fabrics. And sometimes these are very intricate uh, patterns. And sometimes they take up to 10 days to sew. And then they kind of bind it all together, throw it into the woad um, dye. And then what they what comes out is this striking blue and white, amazing de designs that are kind of embedded into the fabric. And uh, different uh, groups have different patterns that they take. So it's really cool. So similarly, in central Japan, there's a city called Arumatsu. So the people there, um, they practice uh, shibori. So yeah, shibori is beautiful. Yeah. So this shibori, um, so this is an ancient technique to manipulate the fabric. So this technique involves stitching elaborate patterns and then tightening, tightening and gathering the stitching before the, dot, the dyeing. And then they form intricate patterns. Sometimes it's like origami and then to there's all these folds that have to happen. And these people, a lot of these people have been doing it for 30 years. Mm -hmm. So you have to really be into it to like keep this yeah. going. And then what comes out are these amazing designs that are featured on the cotton fabrics. But now they're transitioning and expanding it to non-conventional um, fabrics like polyester, and cashmere sweaters, which I'm thinking about going to Japan. <laughs> yeah, like a little sock coming back, feeling fancy. So, you know, but these things have been going on for at least a thousand years. So there's, uh, in, so I've talked about China, I've talked about Japan, and now I want to talk about India. There's evidence as far back as 300 BC as Alexander the Great mentions in his text, the beautiful dyes he encountered in India. So dyes in India have held a deep meaning for thousands of years. So brides have traditionally worn the Benhani sari. It's the oldest method still in practice and it's used to make saris and turbans. So Benhani comes from the word Banhan, which means tying up the technique that is used to make different patterns. So people wear a unique pattern that identifies them as a member of a particular community. So the patterns are important, but also the colors that the patterns. So traditionally there's only two colors used at a time. 
So the colors are normally yellow and red because those are the lucky colors in Indian culture. But in modern times, we got a little relaxed. So now we have yellow, red, greens, and pinks, and, and various shades are used. But the yellow and red still have strong cultural meaning. The red represents a bride or a woman who's re recently married. And the yellow is used for a new mother. So I want to step back here. That's kind of nail home the fact that tie dyeing is resistance dyeing, meaning that you the fabric is resistant or not exposed to the dye. Um, and this is caused by manual manipulation of the fabric. So all the tie dyeing that I've talked about before has involved either sewing in a pattern, folding, scrunching, and then binding the material before the dye. But I'm going to tell you a new one. So in, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> New Taking mental notes. <laughs> so in Indonesia, they have their own form of tie-dye. It's called batik. So if you're from Indonesia, I'm probably going to say all these words wrong. But okay. Just anyway. Doing our best no. to learn. It's awesome. Yeah, doing our best. So batik is an Indonesian technique using wax-resistant dyeing applied to the whole cloth. So this technique originates in the island of Java, Indonesia. So batik is made either by drawing dots and lines and circles of the resist, resist which is wax, um, uh, or um, printing by on the resist with a copper stamp called a cap. So the patterns are placed on the fabric before dyeing, and then the fabric is dyed and then removed, and it produces the stunning images that we, that you have to look up. <laughs> You'll see them, they're really awesome. Yeah. So in the West Coast of Africa, in the Gambia, they combine these two practices. So the Gambia uses color note nuts. They make a rich orange brown color for fabric, which is different from the blues that we've all talked about before. So they come from the tree Kola Natida. Um, and these nets are used as stimulants. So you can chew them to counteract tiredness, thirst, and hunger. <laughs> and I kind of wish they were in the deli so I yeah. could check them out. Do you say, do you, what was the name of it again? Because I thought, I did I hear cola? Cola, cola Okay, nuts. so it really is cola like nuts. the same thing, you know, yeah. Coca Cola. It's like, yeah, <laughs> cola, come on. This already right. marketing, I can, <laughs> right? So in addition, they use indigo, which we heard about before. So those traditional leaves from the indigo plant are pounded into balls, which are soaked and mixed together with a caustic soda. Um, the liquid is made from the roots for the local Wanda bush. And the dye is tested by tasting. <laughs> yes, you heard Very Tasting and also by sight. So these indigo dyes have been used since for centuries in Africa to dye the cloth, but the extract um, recipe has uh, been, it's a normally family secret that's passed down from generations to generations. But I love that about that because we're all like, oh, indigo, indigo, but <laughs> indigo's a little bit different. Uh, everybody's got this family secret. So that's kind of, I just kind of so it's not think like, that's pretty awesome. It's not a big corporate dye, but it's kind of an indie go <laughs> yeah it's kind of indie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love it i love it it's kind of indie. <laughs> yeah i love it 
And but and also what's cool is that when you drop the, the cloth into the indigo dye, the the cloth appears green. And it will only turn blue and once it reacts with the oxygen in the air. Mm. So the addition to um all of these um pigments, the from the cola nuts as well as the indigo, they also use the Baltic style. So this results in a beautiful, intricate, multicolored patterns. And some people think that these patterns inspired the countercultural patterns that we associate with the 1960s. Mm. So it may surprise you, but the first evidence of tie-dye in the United States was in the early 1900s. So Charles E. Pello of Columbia University. <laughs> he acquired some samples of tie-dye muslin and subsequently gave a lecture and a live demonstration of the technique. But tie-dye didn't climb to mainstream popularity until the 1960s. So Bob Weir, he was the drummer of the Great for Dead. <laughs> He met this, uh, <laughs> I kind of know too much about the Grateful Dead is what you're saying. Oh, yes. He's the one with no ice cream flavor in it. So, uh, That's... <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 this is the other. Oh, my gosh. There's not Cherry Garcia. <laughs> this is not Cherry Garcia. So, uh, so, Bob Weir, he had a barn. He invited people over. And he met this guy, Courtney Pollock, who was an Englishman who came over from the, to the United States and he was an artist. And he showed him some of his work. And Bob was like, this is pretty awesome. So he commissioned him to tie-dye the backdrop for the Grateful Dead. Mm. So Courtney Pollock became super famous because he did all of the staging for the Grateful Dead, including the speaker fonts, um, then he started doing tie-dyes, uh, tie-dyes for the band, and he did mandalays. So basically, Courtney Pollock became super famous because of that. Um, and in his own words, he says, my journey began, began during the psychedelic era where vibrant colors and a free spirit were combined to create fun and whimsical clothing and dynamic art. Nice. Very cool. Nice. So this is awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So it was a time for innovation in the tie-dye scene. This other guy who's also super famous and is still doing tie-dye, his name is Paul Kinney. He called, he he just describes himself as a deadhead who used to fall around the Grateful Dead and sell t-shirts at concerts. Um, it's really inspiring the next generation of tie-dye people. So if you see tie-dye with those small circles mm. all throughout, that is oh. Paul Kinney's uh, signature oh, okay. on tie-dye yeah i've seen that and so now there's a whole new generation of tie-dye artists from those who do it at girl scout camp <laughs> to those who tie art and high-end runway shows like in new york fashion week in 2019 tie-dye definitely was shown so tie-dye is one of the, my favorite things and I hope that it's one of your favorite. Far out. Awesome. (laughs) Very cool. So I, about uh, one thing in the story, which was Charles Pello. 
And so when I was looking for a fact, I was just kind of broadly sticking around and I saw that, oh, Columbia professor Charles Pellow, like whatever, did some demonstration. And I was like, I wonder what that was like when he was just like, like, that was like a lab demonstration. So yeah, that's a lot. That's I guess that I didn't read the paper, but it, that's what it said. He did a demonstration so, in 1900. Gather around, yeah. gather around. <laughs> <laughs> We're going yes. to demonstrate the new technique from. <laughs> they also said that, yeah, it was, people used it in the 1920s as well, because it was like during, you know, because we didn't have a lot of money, but they wanted to kind of spruce up their life. So people were doing tie dye at that time so as well. The weird thing about Pello was I was like, oh, like, what did he teach? Was he a chemistry professor? So I tried to look him up in the Columbia website, I tried to look him up online. I, I could not find anything about Charles Pello except like, a hundred websites all about tie-dye. The only place his name appears is on tie-dye like websites. <laughs> and like, not, not that I don't. This is legacy. <laughs> I just like, don't know like where he exists. And so I, I did send off. It's sort of like a music man situation. I feel like, it was like in the Columbia class of all five, but it didn't start till 06. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> but like, Bye. there are a bunch of pictures of him online, but I will say they all look like not necessarily the same person. <laughs> It's like, <laughs> like he's, he's just an urban legend now. He's no longer real. Because I even I went into the New York Times like historical website and looked up his name, and like only ten articles came up, and a bunch of them were obituaries, and they weren't for a Columbia professor. And then Theodore Roosevelt's obituary came up, and I read the whole thing, and he's not in it. But it was a really interesting read. Oh, it's. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I, so Charles, if anyone out there knows about Charles Pello, and like, I, I may have sent a note to one of the historians wow. at a Columbia library to see if he could track down professors from 100 years ago. I am so curious, who was Charles Pello? Really? <laughs> he loves hard eye, man! Isn't that enough for you, Rob? <laughs> Sorry, are you making it clear to your boss right now that you don't like tie-dye? Is that what... <laughs> I think that's... Okay, let's just say that is an interview question. Yeah. It used yeah. to be, like, do you like tie-dye? That's how you weed him out. <laughs> I didn't that was an interview it was, question. It was right before you accept hugs. And I was like, oh, I guess. <laughs> yeah. If I They're like, to. I don't know about this guy. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, Latasha, right. thank you so much for that fact. I can't wait to go back and re-listen to it and just, like, very quickly type, like, 30 different Google searches on all of the gorgeous, like, techniques and patterns you <laughs> talked about. Um, I love, too, with the uh, sort of by tradition that it just started with a guy spilling tea in himself and being like, nope, it's art. It's art now. It's intentional. <laughs> I kind of just want to incorporate that and be like, I did not just spill this coffee. It is, uh, this is my coffee shirt now. This is just, this is my look. <laughs> I don't make mistakes. I make art. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are now, like, Courtney Pollock, some of his work is in art museums. And he he, he, share, he uh, sells prints for not, not cheap. <laughs> well, if... if uh... No, I don't have anything good, but I'm just going to plow ahead and say a really dumb thing I'm going to cut out later. If somebody were to buy me one of those expensive tie-dye paintings and bring it to my funeral, I'd be a Grateful Dead person. 
no. <laughs> Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad I plowed ahead? <laughs> I'm, well, I'm glad I passed it. <laughs> All right, everyone, and that means that we have finally reached our dyes and pigments and color origin quiz. That's right. These questions will all be about the interesting origins or sources for many of the dyes and colors that, in some cases, that uh, we we talked about. Um, Unfortunately, Uh, in some cases, uh, uh, we did not, and I hope that you'll be enthralled by the unexpected um, answers. Question one. What is the name of the pigment used for writing in ancient Greece and Rome, for drawing by Leonardo da Vinci, for toning photographs in the late 19th century, and for pretending that a picture of you is really a picture of your great-grandparent on Instagram? Sepia? Yeah. The answer is sepia. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) Um, So I'll give you a a quick little bonus question. Sepia is the genus of the organism this pigment is extracted from, but what kind of organisms are these? Uh... Hmm. All right. Uh, actually, you're closer than you think. Yeah, they're cephalopods. What? Oh, oh is this okay. yeah. What I thought cuttlefish. It is cuttlefish. Hey! <laughs> but Latasha, amazing guess. Just uh, nice. nobody like of all the organ. I literally didn't even give you animal. Nope. I just said organism. <laughs> And you got very, very close with octopus. Um, so well done. Uh, I'm going to give Latasha the point there, obviously, because, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously I can't give it to Rob. He's not nearly high enough in the biobus hierarchy. Oh <laughs> um, yeah, so the answer is cuttlefish. Um, and so this is, you know, a, a, among many other ancient dyeing techniques, this is one that uh, particularly in the Mediterranean, was used uh, as sort of like ink for writing in recent Rome. And there are a lot of like Leonardo da Vinci like sketches and like a lot of his notes about different, you know, inventions, but also just describing things. I saw basically him, uh, something he had drawn of like a water wheel. So like sort of like a power generating thing, not like a power generator, but you know what I mean? Like using water mm-hmm. to the flow of water to turn a big wheel that could then like mill, you know, oats or whatever they, I don't know. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> My my Renaissance Italian knowledge is, is pretty low uh, since one of the two classes I failed in college, as, as may have been mentioned on the uh, podcast before, was early Renaissance art. Uh, the other one was organic chemistry. Ooh, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> just polar opposites. <laughs> yeah, I, failed two cl- I failed two classes in college. It was organic chemistry, two actually, and early Renaissance art from Giotto to Leonardo. And I, I feel like the Venn diagram of those fields is this episode of Fax Machine. Yeah. Yeah, it basically is. I, I would nice. say that it probably I mean, my desire to take that class was was very much in line with what this podcast is about, about being curious about things like well outside your area and being excited to learn. Mm-hmm. Um the harsh realities of that there were prerequisites for an upper level art history class taught by the uh, uh. department chair had not set in on me when I was a freshman who was just like, wow, that sounds really cool. I would love to take that class. <laughs> Turns out art history is really hard and you have to take a bunch of the prerequisite classes to learn how to study. And I did not succeed. But anyway, um, Leonardo da Vinci used cuttlefish ink as, uh, to, to make drawings. Um, so question two, 
engineers in the UK made headlines across the world when they created one of the darkest substances known, using vertically aligned nanotube arrays to absorb around 99.965% of visible light in the right conditions. What is this material called? Phantom Black. <laughs> All right, great team win there. Uh, so the answer is Vanta Black. Um, but so another bonus question: What does Vanta stand for? Ooh. It's an acronym. Very almost not totally. Oh, <laughs> uh, so close. No, it's actually V A N T A, not O at the end. Yeah, um, so, yeah. uh, sorry. So, I, I would you be surprised if I told you I actually told you the full acronym already? Oh, you said it in the question. I said it in the question. I don't what was remember. it? Remember this? Do you listen to me? This is the ultimate test. Oh, not that well. I mean, okay, you? that's fair. Very, Completely understood. Very absorbent, not totally absorbent. Oh. Okay, I'm going to put you out of your misery. I, I am going to file a report to your supervisor, Rob. Uh, Latasha, he did not listen to my question. I just I just obviously want to complain. I'm writing this down. Please, Take a note. Yes, I, uh, Vanta stands for Vertically Aligned Nanotube Arrays. Oh, um, yeah. And it's just the, the structure oh, of those absorbs a lot of light and minimizes the sort of like refractive scattering that can happen. Um, and uh, create something that absorbs like just a ri- to a ridiculous degree under laboratory conditions, like as much light as possible. And it basically like if you coat um, objects in this, it they appear flattened. Like they just obviously they appear extremely dark, like a black hole where you can just see the outline of the shape. But one really interesting thing is in a three D object that is coated with this, you lose all sense of the the shape of it. Like there's no you don't get any idea because there's no like sort of light and shadow playing with it. You don't get a sense of like, if you, you don't get the sense that if you were looking at like, uh, uh, like a, like a bust or something that you could see sort of the features of the face, even though they are there on, on the actual sculpture. Um, so it's really amazing to like, look at, just go through pictures of of this technology. Um, and as you can imagine, so this material has many interesting engineering applications, but perhaps made the news really more because of its applications in art. So I think maybe a lot of people have heard about, uh, how the artist Anish Kapoor purchased, uh, like the exclusive license to the process of creating Vanta black, or at least for its use in art, Mm -hmm. uh, which, and it's also known as blackest black, uh, meaning that only he could use it in to make art, uh, and so other artists were not thrilled with this decision uh, because it's such it was such a transformative uh, new color for people to to play around with. Nobody could get a hand on it, and one in particular, a painter named Stuart Simple, was so motivated to draw attention to what he viewed as this artistic travesty that he created his own pigment. But this one at least at first, wasn't black. It was actually pink, and he called it pinkest pink. Uh, as, and <laughs> yeah. So he offered it up to artists to use on his website with one single restriction. Quote, by adding this product to your cart, you confirm that you are not Anish Kapoor. You are in no way affiliated to Anish Kapoor. You are not purchasing this item on behalf of Anish Kapoor or an associate of Anish Kapoor. To the best of your knowledge, information, and belief, this paint will not make its way into the hands of Anish Kapoor. <laughs> <laughs> so he was very, very motivated. Um, and uh, I will add that Anish Kapoor somehow, imagine that, did get his hands on it. Uh, literally, when he did, he took a 
picture and posted to Instagram of his middle finger dipped in the pigment uh, with the caption, you know, like a profane caption, you can kind of imagine. Um, and so in response, Stuart Simple actually made a, a a very, very black pigment that could be used in paint and had a lot, just sort of out of revenge, kind of like made uh, something that was maybe not quite the same physical properties, wasn't like it, as like superlative in, in all these sort of like nanotube-like features, um, but nonetheless was an extremely useful, a very, very dark black pigment that could be used in paint. Like I think it was actually quite difficult for Vantablack to be used in, uh, was non-toxic and Vantablack wasn't, and had a lot of other desirable qualities. And it, so I feel like the whole art community really uh, rallied around him yeah. in that, and it was just kind of a fun story to follow. Artists throwing um, shade. <laughs> literally, yeah, nice. We're, Were they able to like um, buy and sell that second black paint, or did it have to be sold on the black market? <laughs> <laughs> very nice i also feel compelled to add in that uh or like highly absorbent uh sort of shades of black occur in nature as well including in some species of birds of paradise to bring it oh, back yeah. i'll never not be yeah obsessed. this is one of Em's <laughs> favorite topics right now as you may have heard in our recent episodes um <sighs> And uh, I'm I'm and still very convinced you need to do that for a Halloween costume for our uh, Halloween show. I like I said I was already 99 percent there, and it was just kind of like I mean literally you were 99 tipping me invisible. over the edge into being like I'm absolutely doing this was just kind of like you know knocking over a domino. It's happening. It's we're, we're doing happening. It. We're doing it. Get excited for our to be announced Halloween live show. <laughs> All right. Oh, is that was it Frankenberry pink? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, nobody, it, not a, not a lot of people knew this, but pink is pink was actually created from pooiest poo. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the only problem with it was the stinkest stink that came with it. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> okay. <sighs> okay. So, question three: a pigment derived from what? taxonomic class of organisms gave the robes of Catholic cardinals, the uniforms of the British redcoats, and Starbucks strawberry frappuccino their distinctive red colors. Uh, it's, the, it's the Beatles, but taxonomic. It is the cochineal. Oh, yeah, it's just those not, guys. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, they're, <laughs> the, the, so the taxonomic class is insects, so you, I, yeah. you went straight to the exact answer, which Woo! is cochineals, <laughs> um, which are not technically beetles but they are colloquially called beetles mm. um and they are and these these particular ones that i'm i'm talking about uh are parasites of the pads of the prickly pear cactus <gasps> yeah. so they live like roughly from peru up to like the southwest united states and these insects are sessile which means that they lack a means of self-locomotion so they basically just kind of sit there on cactus pads and munch you know just all day long just munch on cactus pads Ooh. and if you're just sitting there and you have no means to move around, um, you would be probably pretty concerned about literally any animal or organism just walking right up who, that aren't sessile and just chomping on you. Uh, and the way they prevent themselves from being predated upon uh, is that they produce astoundingly large quantities of a chemical known as carminic acid, which deters uh, predation by other insects. Uh, I, I think people have tasted it and they think it's because it's just very bitter. It's sort of that, that normal thing. Like mm. you taste real bad. So things won't eat you. Um, and it accounts for, and this is, this blew my mind. Carminic acid accounts for up to 25% of the dry weight of this animal. Wow. 
Wow. Which wow. is a lot. <laughs> yeah. So it, it basically makes a lot of it. And carminic acid happens to be red. So it can be used to create this dye carmine, which has this really nice red color. Uh, and actually had been used by the Maya and Aztec peoples as far back as like the second century BCE. Uh, and then during Spanish colonization, it was the second most like basically it's, it says here second most valued export, but with any sort of colonization related process it is more like the second most valuable like extraction um but next to silver which obviously spanish colonists valued a lot um and which was something that was weird is it was apparently unknown in europe that the dye came from crushed up insects until like the 18th century uh which is because i don't i don't think it was a secret in mexico which is weird i i just think that's like strange but basically you can imagine like all these like catholic cardinals uh and then sort of the noted colonialists themselves the the british army uh and then also um uh starbucks uh which i'm sure are thrilled to be listed in that (laughs) sorry another enemy of the pod um um, yeah sorry rob are you gonna say something i was just gonna say product labels back then were definitely not what they were today so you know informed consumers (laughs) were were in a tight spot Well, it's it's actually uh, it's actually listed in like ingredients as like natural coloring, like four, I think, or, or some some red, number. Red four, but uh, red it's 40, just I think, yeah, yeah, something like that. But it's but it's listed under it, at least for a while, it was just under like natural colors, mm. um, which doesn't really give like the same impression of like crunched up, <laughs> <laughs> crunched up little cactus bugs. Um, I don't, but honestly, I don't find that as offensive as I as apparently some people seem to. Uh, but, um, this Starbucks actually had to pull there, or at least change the ingredient that was the red in their strawberry frappuccino because people, uh, were concerned. I think it was sort of more about animal welfare. It was like that the strawberry frappuccino mm. wasn't vegan was sort of their, mm. their more concern. Although I think that in the frappuccino, there may be ingredients <laughs> like, I think maybe milk probably. <laughs> um, a, I don't know. A if higher a... concern. <laughs> well, if they were getting like an almond milk version and thinking they were in the clear. Then maybe. Yeah, mm. exactly. Could be. Um, it is probably a little concerning that when you're using a very red fruit to make uh, a, a drink, that then you have to add a red dye to it. Um, but look, we're a simple podcast, and that's outside the remit. Uh, so, so I'm just going to press on to question four. Question four. In ancient Mediterranean civilizations, titanic quantities of marine snails were harvested, dissected, and left on the beach to rot in order to produce what color associated with royalty and antiquity? Mm. Oh, that's a stumper. Mm. I wonder <laughs> if you know this one. I spend all this time <laughs> trying to come up with good, fun questions for you, and then you go ahead and you just ruin it right in the thing. <laughs> Why are you so good at researching is my question. <laughs> uh, so what's the answer? I, I don't want to guess because I'm going to mix up the purples. That's what I'm going to do. So <laughs> I'm just going to sit back and wait. <laughs> I admittedly got so embroiled in being like, oh, I know this question. I know all these clues that I forgot what the question was actually asking for. So can I get a partial repeat of the question? Oh, oh I'm sorry. The, what I, all I'm hearing is you don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh i'll just go ahead and tell you, you and you go. get this one wrong all right <laughs> it was, okay so I'll, was, I'll re- can i can i guess though because you're, you're asking for it's the, the one about marine snails mm-hmm. tell me the dye yeah. oh the dye oh uh the yeah the Tyrian blue or, Tyrian or purple yeah. Tyrian purple yeah. in particular yes yeah. 
different so the, different the snails, different shades, but yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, this is yeah purple, specifically Tyrian purple, uh, and it's actually named after the Phoenician city of Tyre, which is in present-day Lebanon. Uh, but according to David Jacobi, the author of Silk Economics and Cross-Cultural Artistic Interaction, quote, 12,000 snails <laughs> of Murex bandaris yield no more than 1.4 grams of pure dye, enough to color only the trim of a single garment. Yeah, that was the so, figure I saw. <laughs> basically, <laughs> it was extremely difficult to produce uh, and to, like, the yield was very low. Uh, but it was also extremely valuable, about three times the value of gold. So there were these giant stinky beaches, basically, where all these, like, animals were just, like, uh, dissected and then, like, either left out or the, I think, the hypobrachial glands is, is sort of the ink-containing gland or ink-secreting gland uh, that they boiled in these, like, giant lead vats to extract the color um, and it or to extract the, basically, the chemical compounds that then, when they were treated with heat and acid, could turned into like the purple color of the dye um, and it made for this very beautiful color purple but also for a very stinky Roman emperor um, but of course who was going to tell them you know what I mean? <laughs> right um, and the connotations of wearing purple were jealously guarded by some royalties such as the Roman emperor Caligula who saw that a Roman client king named Ptolemy of Mauritania had entered a theater uh, wearing a very fancy purple cloak and ordered him killed <laughs> Because Yikes. he dared to wear a fully purple cloak. Uh, and, like, for example, even Roman senators, are, I, I don't know about around the time, but Roman senators were allowed to wear basically, like, purple trim, uh, but not the fully purple cloak or, I get toga maybe? I'm not exactly sure of my Roman uh, uh, mm. sartorial knowledge, but uh, the, the sort of full purple clothing was reserved for just the emperor um, okay. themselves. So uh, another contrast to that, though, I thought was really interesting was the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius reflected on the meaninglessness of the trappings of royalty, saying in his meditations, this purple robe is only some sheep's wool dyed with the blood of a shellfish. There are things which appear most worthy of our approval. We ought to lay them bare and look at their worthlessness and strip them of all the words by which they are exalted. For outward show is a wonderful perverter of the reason. And when you are most sure that you are engaged in matters worth your while, it is then that it cheats you the most. Sing. So, <laughs> so question five, uh, another one ruined uh, by Rob. Coming <laughs> to the rescue of... Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, completely ruined. Why are we even doing this? Um, coming to the rescue of marine snails everywhere, chemist William Henry Perkin accidentally created movine, also known as aniline purple, while trying to synthesize the phytochemical quinine in order to treat what disease? See what? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> How did you know? I am MRT. You just knew that. You definitely knew that anyway. Um, so, the, yeah, of course, the answer is Valeria. Um, in 1856, William Henry Perkin was an 18-year-old chemistry student under the tutelage of the famous chemist August Wilhelm von Hoffmann uh, and was given the task... Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and was given the task of synthesizing quinine as a treatment for malaria. He did not succeed. Uh, and developing a treatment for this awful disease, but one of his failed attempts did turn purple. So that's something, right? Um, I, I guess <laughs> it's, it's not bad. 
<laughs> a lot of people have gotten less. Um, in uh, fact, it actually became one of the first chemical dyes to be mass produced. And as you'll recall, since purple was such like a difficult color to get with the natural dyes that were available, now that it could be synthesized in these large quantities, everything started being made purple. Um, in fact, in 1860, it was so popular that magazines described the throngs of people wearing purple clothing as, quote, like so many migrating birds of purple paradise. And a different one, quote, the mauve measles are spreading to so serious an extent that it is high time to consider by what means they may be checked. Wow. The mauve measles. That, that didn't land. <laughs> Con- I feel like they contagious purple clothing. <laughs> I thought that was cool. You can just yeah. picture a room full of old men in suits being like, this is a plague upon our society. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was picturing poor little 18-year-old William Perkins going oh. to his PI being like, so I didn't make quinine. But, <laughs> but bright side. I, I made purple. <laughs> can I can I write my dissertation purple? now? <laughs> get, get this mauve measle away from me. <laughs> anyway, uh, so now we have question six. Litmus is the name for the mixtures of different dyes used in one of the oldest forms of pH indication, i.e., the litmus test. But what composite organism are they extracted from? Cabbage. Oh, it's not cabbage, but okay. good thinking. Yeah, cab- not ne- not necessarily close to cabbage, but I just kind of right. like the way you composite, said it. Yeah. Composite organism. Yeah. Com- composite organism is an interesting one because yeah, yeah, it, that's the main clue. I'll tell you that. It makes me think of like so that's like m- several organisms living together, like a lichen. Lichen. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> the answer is lichen. Nice. Um, and I actually thought you were going to get it a lot earlier in that sentence when you said it makes me think of like, <laughs> and I was like, oh. Uh, oh. halfway there. I, I did have two <laughs> false likes in that sentence, including <laughs> like a lichen. <laughs> that one was intentional. The one before was not. <laughs> yes. So um, basically there, there are a lot of um, dyes that are made up from just sort of like scraping off like, which you should not do because takes a very long time to grow um lichen so don't don't do this but it is true that there are dyes such as litmus the one used for that ph indicator a dye that changes color um it, one particular mixture changes color when it's exposed to uh a, a base and one that changes color when it's exposed to acid uh and they're derived from basically you know mushed up lichen and that's I think that's pretty interesting. You know, I learned that in Hamilton. Oh yeah. Yeah. Lit must be nice. Lit must be nice. Lit must be nice. <laughs> <laughs> to have lichens in your dyes. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, Lin Manuel. I know you're listening. And I know that hurt you. As much as they hurt us. <laughs> <laughs> so, question seven. Shields green was a pigment made from copper and arsenic and used to make beautiful green wallpaper in the 19th century, but also released arsine gas when it got wet or moldy. It's a small price to pay for beauty. But recently, it has been implicated in the death of what former world leader who did not say... Abel was I, ere I saw Elba. Oh, really? That's, uh, Elba's where Napoleon died. 
that's true yeah, it wasn't an answer. And, and what Emily said was an answer. I just had a statement. What, what, what did you say, Emily? I said Napoleon. Yes, Napoleon is the answer. <laughs> do, do you see, I, I was doing this sort of old trivia host thing of like, you're like, that's Napoleon, Dad. I'm like, sure. I've heard that. <laughs> yes, the answer is Napoleon. So I look, it has been suggested that he may have died from arsenic poisoning uh, potentially as a result of uh, wallpaper, basically, and paint in general, containing a lot of really toxic substances, including arsenic. Um, it is probably more likely that it was a lifetime-long exposure to to arsenic in these, in basically, in wallpaper uh, and, and things like that that, that uh, contributed to his death. But uh, people got really excited uh, when a sample of the wallpaper in, I think it was his bedroom at the the place where he was um, uh, exiled to in Elba. And it was it was this green color that contained arsenic. And people knew this about Shields Green and how dangerous it was. Uh, it was found much later. So people were thinking, oh, my goodness, all these theories about the British assassinating him may not have been true. It may He was maybe wasn't poisoned. Maybe he just had touched his moldy arsenic covered wallpaper or something. Um, but it was probably that Napoleon and I'll, I'll say this is Canon Napoleon licked wallpaper his whole life. Um, <laughs> and that's, uh, and that's what you get. And that's what you get. Um, just, so, just little elbow grease. <laughs> yeah. So the, the final question. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so, question eight. Dragon's blood was used as a dye by the Romans, sourced from the species Dracaena Draco on an archipelago off of the west coast of Africa. I have a very simple question for you. How did the Romans harvest dragon's blood? Uh, you, those... you should feel free to ask any clarifying questions. I can imagine there might be dragons, right? No? Okay. No. Gila monsters? No. I know they're like a real... Okay. Was did they Sounds harvest familiar. it? No, from an I'm talking about dragon's blood. I'm talking about dragon's blood from the species Dracaena Draco. I'm not talking about any like imitation dragons, <laughs> like those lizards. This is not a lizard. <laughs> I'm this trying is a, to imagine dragons. <laughs> okay, so this is Dracaena Draco, which lives <laughs> off. It continues to live to this day on an archipelago off the west coast of Africa. This is fax machine. I would not tell you that there is dragon's blood if there wasn't dragon's blood. Okay. <laughs> So I'm, I'm guessing they uh, they did it kind of in private rooms, out of sight, with no witnesses. With <laughs> eyeballs. I don't know. Ooh. Eyeballs. Okay. Uh, no, this this organism oh, doesn't okay. have eyeballs. Okay. Is it a plant? It is a plant. Ah. It is a plant, is and I that's good enough for the to get okay. the answer. Mm. I'll tell you, it, so getting that it was a plant was the, the key part of this mystery. Okay. Uh, so Dracaena Draco is known as the dragon blood palm uh, or the dragon blood tree. Uh, they're actually two different uh, species. Uh, one is in uh, the Socotra Archipelago. It was part of the Arabian Sea, which and it's, I'm sorry, it's in the Arabian Sea and part of Yemen. And the other one is in the Canary Islands off uh, the west coast of Africa. Uh, and it, it is so called because of the red sap that the trees produce. Uh, and, it, and it was basically, interestingly, it was uh, indistinguishable to the Romans from, or they had a lot of trouble uh, distinguishing it from cinnabar, 
which it itself was used as a red dye and is extremely yeah. toxic. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's like, I, I feel like this was the kind of thing where it this was like a red dye that they thought was cinnabar but didn't kill you, and they used it just enough to like keep using cinnabar. <laughs> they were like, surely the cinnabar won't kill us this time, and then they have that positive reinforcement, and then they go back to the cinnabar and it kills them. Like, yeah, um, okay, but we'll try was... you again in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. So with that, that's our show. Thank you for listening. And Latasha, it was so wonderful to have you on this episode. Um, thank you so much yeah, for joining us. Yeah, this episode was to die for. Yes. Oh, very good. Very nice. <laughs> and if you were Napoleon, you may very well already have. <laughs> um, well, I was there... gratefully dead if I was. So. Hey. <laughs> oh, the closure. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Full circle. Love that. Um, so is there anything uh, you'd like to plug? Do you uh, social media um, or Biobus? links yeah yeah go to check out biobus at biobus twitter and instagram at biobus <laughs> at biobus i think that's all the facebook the social uh you know instagram all of that go check it out <laughs> awesome so uh you if you want to learn more about this podcast you can check out our website at faxmachinepodcast.com and please follow us on uh all of our accounts as well uh, you can find us on instagram and twitter at fax machine pod and on facebook at fax machine podcast and if you'd like to follow us individually i'm at arcs in sciences m at underscore em costa and rob at sweater vest sci and just to reiterate if you want to learn about all the cool stuff that biobus is doing you can follow their social media at biobus and if you think wow what an amazing organization i love the idea of educating children about science on a bus full of incredible microscopes and rob um you can you can donate uh to biobus's incredibly important mission at donate.biobus.org Fax Machine is produced by Noah Guyberson, M. Costa, and Rob Frawley, with editing by Noah Guyberson. Our theme music is by Anthony Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. Bye! Bye! Bye. <laughs>